Hello, guys, and welcome to the Medicine Made Easy podcast. I'm Becca, a second-year medical student. And I'm Josh, a fourth-year medical student. We are happy to be with you tonight. It has been a long day of studying cardiology, and Josh has been at the hospital doing his neurology rotation, so we are just super happy to be recording a podcast again, because it's been a cray-cray week. As always, we have to start with our disclaimer. This podcast is meant to provide information. We are not giving medical advice. If you have any personal medical problems, please see your physician. Woohoo. Should we start with some fast facts? Let's hear them. Okay, guys. So today's topic is going to be all about opioids and the opioid epidemic um, and just a big background about this whole issue, which when I was doing my research for this podcast got me pretty heated and it probably (laughs) will get you heated too because it's really frustrating. So fast facts for this episode. Fast fact number one is that more than 130 people die every single day from an opioid overdose, which could be prescription or heroin. And we'll dive into the different categories a little bit more later. Um, But that was fast fact number one. So fast fact number two is that in 2015, there were more opioid drug overdose deaths than automobile accidents and um, gun fatalities for the entire year, which is just mind-blowing. More than those two combined? Yep, wow. more than those two combined. Um, and then the third fast fact that we have is that one out of every three opioid prescriptions is abused. That's a lot. That's a lot of prescriptions. How many opioid prescriptions are written per year in the U.S.? So there's about 170 million opioid prescriptions written every single year, which means that one third of those are abused, which is... So over 50 million prescriptions. Yeah, exactly. That is a lot of prescriptions. Okay, so I know we've all probably heard of opioids before, but maybe we're not super familiar about what that actually means, what the different types of opioid drugs are, so... I'm going to send it over to Josh to go over some of the different types that I'm sure you've heard of before. All right. So some of the classic opioids are morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, and those are all pure opioids. There are also what they call opioid combinations where you take one of those opioids that we listed and it's combined with something like Tylenol. And some of those include Percocet, Oxycontin, Vicodin. And then, of course, there's also a Drugs like heroin, you're like street opioids, and obviously there are dozens of other specific names and combinations, but those are some of the biggest ones. So why would they combine opioids with like a Tylenol? By combining an opioid with another pain control medication, such as a Tylenol, it helps attack the person's pain from a couple different mechanisms, and it also decreases the actual amount of opioid that would have to be used. That being said, there's still opioid within those combinations, so it can be addictive and they can be abused. Okay, speaking of abuse and how um, these drugs actually work in our body, do you want to go over a little bit more of what they actually work on, what the cells are, kind of just the details on how these drugs actually work once you take them? Yeah, I'll I'll try to simplify this as, as well as I can. So opioids act on specific receptors inside the body which are actually called opioid receptors and they're called this because our body naturally produces what they call endogenous opioids 
So they're a chemical that's similar to what's in the medications, but your body produce, produces it naturally in smaller amounts. And your body has three different types of receptors that the opioids can work on. And these are the mu, delta, and kappa, which I'm sure there's some really specific scientific definition of what separates them. I couldn't tell you what that is, but I do know that they act in different ways. So the one that has seems to have the strongest effect on pain, but also on euphoria, so that good feeling that people get that causes them to be addicted, is the mu receptor. So not only does it impact pain in the periphery by blocking what is normally like your pain pathways, so it activates what they call inhibitory nerve pathways, so it stops the pain from going up, but in the brain it also causes excess dopamine to be released which dopamine is the feel-good hormone that you have in your brain. Which I was going to say, isn't dopamine the thing that makes me happy in my brain? It is. It helps you. It makes you happy, and it also impacts movement in certain parts of the brain. But yes, it causes big rushes of the dope, dopamine to be released, which is ultimately what causes people to have that euphoria, to feel good on it, to be relaxed. So and- opioids block the feeling of pain, but also they increase the feeling of that happiness and like, that feeling, that good feeling that you get with yeah, dopamine. because they work in different parts of the body, they cause both of those things. So, so it's it's the mu receptors in the brain that really cause the problem by causing that euphoria, which is what causes the addiction. The other two receptors also impact pain in the periphery, but they have slightly different impacts or effects on mood. Uh, delta and kappa have both been shown to be good for pain as well. Uh, kappa, it seems like in terms of mood, actually kind of goes the complete opposite direction and gives what's called dysphoria. So it actually kind of makes you like anxious and sad. And it looks like the delta receptors are more like in the middle. They help reduce some anxiety. Unfortunately, it's been difficult to find drugs that specifically target just the delta or just the kappa so that you don't have that addictive nature. Some of the medications that are out there show more affinity or are more attracted to one receptor over the other. But for the most part, the mu receptors still tend to be very strong and they still have that addictive quality. So the mu receptor is the one in the brain. And then when you say in the periphery, what does that mean? So when I say in the periphery, I'm talking in your spinal cord. So what carries the nerves out to the body, you have bundles of nerves by the spinal cord and then going out into your like arms and legs in different areas and those areas or those nerve bundles also have these receptors and that's where they block the pain pathways so the pain never makes it up to your brain okay so the opioid drugs block all three of these receptors or do they just block the mu ones They usually work on all of them, but it seems like, especially some of the older and the more potent opioids, work much more strongly on the mu receptors. So the ones in the brain. Yeah, which is why you get good pain control, but you also get that addiction. Okay, good to know. Okay, so that was talking about a lot of science and talking about how opioids work for pain and the unfortunate aspect they have on addiction. But why don't we go back and talk about why they were first created, and just how long they've been around, because it's been quite a while. Yes, it has. All right, let's talk history. So opioids have been around for a really, really long time. And honestly, there were so many different sites I was looking at that had 
such detailed history of opioids. So I've picked out the biggest, most interesting things to touch base on. Um, so we're going to, first of all, go back to like the 1770s. And that's right around the time when opium, opium came to the U.S. So opium is the extract that is derived from poppy plants and it's used to make morphine and all of those drugs that Josh listed as opioids. Um, so around the late 1700s is that is when that came to the United States. Um, and then in the later 1800s during the Civil War, it was actually used to treat soldiers. And this is the first time that we really saw the addictive properties that opioids could have on people, but it wasn't really documented or talked about, um, at least at that time. So in the late 1800s, there was continuing to be that increase in addiction. Um, and actually opioids were an over the counter medication. So a lot of times people would use heroin for pain relief or a cough, which is just crazy. So heroin has been a long, around that long, but at one time it was actually like a prescribed medication or something that they actually like made in pharmacies? Yeah, it was made and it was, you didn't even need a prescription for it. You could just walk into the store and buy a bottle of heroin. So that's bonkers. But obviously as people started to use heroin and narcotics more over the counter, uh, they realized that these were really, really, really addictive drugs. So in 1914, the Harrison Narcotics Act was enacted in the U.S. and this banned over-the-counter narcotics which just helped with the regulations of it. You had to get a prescription from your doctor if you needed these strong painkillers. So then from about 1920 to the 1950s, doctors were really nervous about prescribing these strong painkillers because they knew that they were addictive and they saw the effects that these addiction had on people. So they were really skeptical about prescribing them to their patients. So they really only were used for people who were dying or who were in really acute pain, so like short-term pain. Um, and the guidelines were, they were, weren't super specific, but basically they were only used for cancer pain um, and really acute things, not for anything chronic. Okay, so in the 1990s is when things started to get really, really messy. And I seriously get so heated reading all of the different like articles and stuff about this, because looking back on all of this, it was like a perfect storm that created the opioid epidemic we have today. And it's just so frustrating. Um, but OK, so in 1998, Purdue Pharma, which is this big pharmaceutical company, um, decided to market Oxycontin, which is an extended release version of oxycodone, which had been around for a little bit. Um, but they decided to invest a ton of money in this drug, like over $200 million just in the marketing of Oxycontin. And they did this because they wanted to make money. So if these drugs had been around for so long and they knew that they were habit-forming or addictive, why did they suddenly start prescribing more of these, even if this pharmacy did market it? Okay, so this is another important aspect to the opioid epidemic that we're living in right now. So in the 1990s, not only was Purdue Pharma marketing their drugs, but the American Medical Association and 
just basically medicine in general was encouraging physicians to better control their patients' pain. And actually, they tried to consider pain as the fifth vital sign. So doctors were being rewarded for treating their patients' pain, and they were being punished if their patients' pain wasn't well-managed. So it was just a recipe for disaster. And did, so how did the pharmacy companies or the pharmaceutical companies take advantage of that? So doctors being punished if their patient's pain, which is a, is a subjective thing, and I'm not saying that pain is fake, but I'm saying that vital signs are all objective except for pain. So it's really hard to assess pain, at least in the physician's shoes, because it's not something you can just measure. So big pharma and specifically Purdue Pharma took advantage of this by marketing Oxycontin as a non-addictive opioid. That's how they marketed this drug. And that is 100% false. It is very, very, very addictive. And they just had a ton of lies within their marketing uh, techniques. So they had a bunch of different avenues of marketing that they used to try to encourage doctors to prescribe this medication to their patients. So they not only used a ton of pharmaceutical sales reps to go out and talk to doctors and tell them the benefits of Oxycontin and how it's not addictive and how it's the perfect way to increase their patients' pain scores so that they look good as doctors. Um, They hired a ton of sales reps. They marketed it as non-addictive. They had a ton of videos made that they sent out to doctors talking about how patients' life had been improved with Oxycontin and how their lives are so much better and they're not addicted to these drugs. Not only that, but they also even created continuing education courses, which if you're not familiar with what that means, doctors have to complete a certain number of continuing education courses every year just to keep up with their license. So Purdue Pharma created continuing education courses specifically about opioids and opioids as painkillers and the effect that they have on people. So doctors were completing these as education and they thought that what they were learning about was true. But in fact, it was a big, fat, ugly pile of lies. And it is so frustrating. (laughs) Like reading all of these articles about what happened makes me seriously so freaking mad. Not only did they create these continuing education courses and hire sales reps to go out to doctors, um, But they were very specific in the doctors that they sent these sales reps to. So they had this database that analyzed what type of prescriptions each doctor in the country uh, regularly prescribes. So they targeted the people that prescribe the most opioids. And that's where they sent their pharmaceutical reps to because they knew that's where they would have the greatest success. So so that's where they sent these reps to. And remember, you do not need a medical degree to become a far- pharmaceutical sales rep. You just need, I don't even know if you need a degree for it, honestly. You're basically just a salesman for drugs, but you don't even know the science behind these drugs. Yeah, I don't know anything about it either. But it's, oh, it is so frustrating. But so these reps would go out, meet with these doctors, market the wonder drug that they had of Oxycontin and how it's a non-addictive opioid even though it's so addictive, that's how they would market it. And these sales reps were trained to say all of these lies to doctors to convince them to prescribe more and more and more. They even had coupons in place so that patients were able to get their first dose of Oxycontin 100% free. Like that is so messed up. Um, 
But not only that, there's more to this story, guys. There is so many different layers of this that are just messed up on so many different levels. But there is something that they trained their pharmaceutical reps to tell doctors because after these doctors were prescribing Oxycontin, they were like, you know, our patients are coming back and it seems like they're addicted to these drugs. Are you sure it's not addictive? And these sales reps were trained to say, no, that is pseudo addiction, which means that they are exhibiting the signs of drug addiction. But that just means that you're not prescribing a high enough dose. And so they would instruct these doctors to prescribe a higher dose of these opioids, which would just make the problem so much worse. And doctors trusted these sales reps. These sales reps didn't know what they were actually marketing for. And everyone at Purdue Pharma was making billions of dollars by getting the country addicted to opioid painkillers. So that is a huge overview on Purdue Pharma. I encourage you so, so much to do your own research on this. Just Google Purdue Pharma opioid epidemic because they they lied to doctors. They lied to the people that worked for them and they falsified journal articles. They falsified studies. They would fund these studies um, and say that these drugs weren't addictive. But in fact, they were falsifying all the data. It is so messed up and it caused such a serious epidemic in our country. And we're just dealing with the beginning of the ramifications of it right now. Um, So that is a big overview on Purdue Pharma. I get very heated about this because it's just it's so frustrating that one company's big pile of lies could impact the entire country and the entire world so, so, so much. So Purdue Pharma's ploy marketing campaign, that was a big pile of lies, combined with the Medical Association's um, campaign to improve patients' pain was just a big, big disaster. And over the five-year span since OxyContin came out, I have some stats for you that are going to blow your freaking mind. So the morphine prescriptions in this country went up by 73%, which is a lot. Hydromorphone went up by 96%. Fentanyl went up by 226%. The prescriptions went up by 226% and Oxycontin went up by 402%. That is so many opioid prescriptions. And here's the thing, guys. After all of these prescriptions went up, we started to realize that, oh my God, these drugs are actually really addictive. I don't know what Purdue Pharma was thinking. They're really addictive. Then regulations started to control opioid medication prescriptions more. And we cut off all these people from their prescriptions, even though they're addicted. And it just caused a big mess. It caused spikes in heroin increase. It caused um, spikes in overdose deaths. And it's just been a big, big mess because of this huge catastrophe that Purdue Pharma caused in our country. And another crazy stat for you, 80% of heroin users started on prescription opioids. 80%. That is so many people. And I really feel like we have this picture in our head of what a drug abuser, a drug user, a drug addict looks like. But with opioids, there is no face that you can put on opioid addiction because it literally affects every single community, every single race, every single age group out there. So it's really hard to pinpoint you know, what an opioid addict looks like. Like I saw a 
article that was talking about how if you saw someone, someone pull out a bag of cocaine and start snorting it in the grocery store, like you would obviously say something because you'd be like, what the hell are you doing? But if someone pulled out a, just a prescription out of their purse and took a couple pills, you probably wouldn't say anything because you would assume it's fine. It's their prescription. So it's really hard to detect when someone's addicted to opioids. Um, and there really is no face that you can put on it because it affects everyone. So what has happened to Purdue Pharmaceuticals since the early 2000s when this whole thing was really happening and taking off? So they made billions of dollars. Like they were making over two to three billion dollars every single year. But in 2007, they were sued for lying about the addictive properties of their medication. And they were sued for uh, about six hundred and thirty million dollars. And there's a bunch of other lawsuits that have come up since then. Um, Actually, there's still active cases going on. Like there were news articles published a few days ago because this is still an ongoing um, case because it's such a big deal. Um, But they also were sued by the United States for more than $10 billion recently because of the impact they've had on the opioid epidemic. And they actually filed for bankruptcy a couple years ago. It is just such a disaster. I really, really, really encourage you guys to do your own research on this, too, because it's interesting, but so devastating. And I think something that we can take away from this is that doctors really need to make sure that the drugs they're prescribing and the treatment methods that they're using in their practice is backed by scientific evidence, by clinical studies that aren't falsified, by Uh, studies that aren't contraindicated by who owns the company who funded the study. It's just trying to find, I guess, things that we can learn from this so that it doesn't happen again in the future. Well, we've talked about all these negatives and we're trying to highlight some of the other positives. One thing to point out is that opioids are still used and they are still effective in the right situation. So for short-term severe pain control, such as post-surgical, or if you have some acute trauma, using opioids is an effective way to manage your pain. So if you're going to be prescribed opioids by your physician, and there are times where this is a good choice, you need to be aware of some of the side effects and of the fact that they can be addictive. And now we're going to go into some of those other side effects, if you want to take over again. Yeah, sure. So some of the side effects are Actually, with prolonged opioid use, you can have increased sensitivity to pain, which doesn't really make sense, but it's just another reason that we don't use opioids for chronic pain because it can actually make pain worse in the long run. Um, Some of the other common ones are constipation, dry mouth. Um, Another big one is sleep. It can make you sleepy or confused. And if you remember from the good movie Wizard of Oz, Right before they get to the wizard's, like, castle thing? is it, It's a castle. Palace, yeah. yeah. the palace, the castle. If you remember, the Wicked Witch <laughs> makes Dorothy go to sleep, and they're in a field of poppies, which is where opium comes from. So that's a good way to remember that opium, opioids, make you sleepy. Good old wizard of us. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the biggest side effect, which is overdose. And... This happens because opioids naturally, when they work in your brain, in some of those areas we talked about earlier, one of the effects that they have is they decrease your respiratory drive or they decrease how much oxygen you're actually getting. 
And if this gets suppressed enough, you can actually stop breathing. And this is when you need to use some of the rescue medications that you hear a lot of, which is Narcan. Mm-hmm. Definitely used, saw that used a lot when I worked in the ER. Yeah, it's used way more than we would like it to be, but it's also very effective. And if you're going to be, if you're someone who is on opioids or you know someone that's addicted to it, it's definitely something that you want to keep around in case something bad does happen. Yes, definitely. And I think there's a lot of pharmacies. I don't know for sure in your area, but there's a lot of pharmacies that give you Narcan for free. Yeah. Which is something that we wish we didn't have to use it, but having it on hand if you know someone who's an addict um, is just good to know. Yeah. All right. So now that we covered some of the side effects to watch out for if you are on opioids, let's talk about some of the alternative pain control measures that you can try to take so that you don't have to resort to opioids. Obviously, like we said, there are times when opioids are good, but if you have the option to try other less severe uh, choices for pain control, some of the things you can look at are uh, NSAIDs, which are some of your anti-inflammatories. So those include ibuprofen or some stronger ones like uh, Tordal is one that you'll hear used. You can also try to use just Tylenol. Tylenol is very good at controlling pain, even though it's something that you hear talked about all the time. But obviously, that's something, again, that if you use too much of it, it can have side effects as well. Um, steroids can be used at times, not the steroids that are going to make you big and strong and muscly, but steroids that decrease your body's inflammatory response and help control pain. You can also use topical applications like lidocaine, which just works on the peripheral nerves, so the nerves out in like your skin and muscles, to kind of numb those areas up, but it's not habit-forming, like your opioids are and depending on what your pain is coming from muscle relaxants can also be a good option because they'll help you just loosen up and be more comfortable if you don't want to use pharmaceuticals some of the other approaches you can try to take are depending on your view on these things they're what would (laughs) would definitely be considered alternative medications but there are certain mind body or biofeedback practices that you can work on to like use your breathing to help control your pain or just change your mindset on things. You can try to use different hot and cold therapies to control your pain. Yoga has been shown to improve a lot of people's chronic pain conditions. Certain types of therapeutic massages can be used depending on what the source of your pain is. And then there's also things like acupuncture where if they are performed in the right locations, they can hit nerves with pain centers and help reduce your pain in that way as well. I think all of those are very interesting. I really feel like the future of medicine is turning into a combination of alternative medicine and what we think of as basic clinical medicine, because those alternative practices really are effective. And I know that when I worked in the ER, we used a lot of those, and they had a lot of different studies going, talking about like the effects of acupuncture on people with chronic pain who came into the ER all the time because of it. Um, So I'm glad you brought those up. Yeah, the mind is a very powerful thing. And I think there's a a stigma around some of those alternative practices. But I think it's good for us to be more cautious on jumping to pharmacies or pharmaceutical treatment for pain. Absolutely. So I think that's all we have for you guys tonight. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Medicine Made Easy. 
As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us or make any requests for topics you'd like us to cover, you can send us an email at medicinemadeeasypodcast at gmail.com, or you can give us a follow on Instagram and send us a message there. And I do have one more thing to say that I just thought of. So if you're interested in all of this stuff, like opioid epidemic, um, just the drug problem we have in our country in general, I recommend this show on Netflix. It's called Drugs, Inc., and I watched it in like a matter of two days because it's super, super good. And the lady who produces this show goes into the different like economical um, aspects of the drug trade and how it's more than just a matter of getting the addicts to stop. It's really just such a big business in our world that is really hard to break. But it's so interesting. I recommend that you watch it. It's called Drugs, Inc. And it's on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's on any other streaming sites. But if you watch it, please let me know because I thought it was really great and just super interesting. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.